But we uh, left off with this section in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the conscience. And uh, he's talking about uh, these different issues that are in our lives uh, where we might have difference of opinion on things and how to go about things. But uh, the way we choose to go through these things and make these decisions should have the aim of glorifying the Lord. And we've seen from the beginning of this study in 1 Corinthians uh, that the Corinthians themselves were very entitled people in this culture, in this Greek culture. Uh, the Greeks really uh, kind of prided themselves on being very intellectual, uh, very wise. Uh, they thought they are kind of ahead of the game compared to all the other people who were maybe a little more backwater. Uh, and social status for them was really considered sort of currency. Uh, it was valuable to them. Uh, and the other things, uh, like marriage, for instance, wasn't really for the purpose of love and unity uh, but it was a, it was a social uh, status, uh, who you were married to, the fact that you were married. Uh, wives were, weren't really for intimacy, or for best friendship. Uh, they were really just kind of really trophy wives. Uh, who you knew, who you followed, uh, the kind of teaching you followed, that was all kind of uh, gave you street cred, depending on who you were kind of in the in crowd. Uh, and uh, this is why the factions started kind of arising in the church. Some people say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and... Uh, who your favorite teacher was and who you ascribed yourself to and identified with uh, really kind of um, signified how popular or how smart or wise or what kind of person you were. And this was all currency for them. Uh, It was all the way they got credibility and identity uh, in their life. And Paul is feeling and hearing the pressure from the Corinthians uh, as he knows that they want him to be a certain type of leader, a certain type of pastor. These are, uh, you know, they were Gentiles that had a certain way of life following philosophers and these wise sages. And now they're taking this risk following after Christ. And now they're ascribing themselves to certain teachers. And they want these teachers to kind of look like these worldly powers, uh, these worldly type teachers. So the pressure is on Paul to conform a bit, to be the kind of teacher, the kind of orator, the kind of speaker uh, that they are used to in their culture. They want the pastors to mimic the kind of leaders and kind of shepherds, so to speak, uh, that the world has to offer. And he senses that the Corinthians want this from him uh, to look more like others, other types of leaders. And it was common practice in this culture for Corinthians uh, and Greeks just in general uh, to treat their philosophers, their teachers, their leaders, uh, political leaders and whatnot Uh, to some kind of material or financial gain. They would offer them gifts. They would take care of them. And that sounds very nice and very generous, uh, very loving, but their motive was far from that. Uh, Their motive was for their own self-prominence, their own self-status, kind of the pat on the back, but also to have influence and control over those leaders, Uh, much like how we do a lot of our politicking today. You have special interest groups. You have lobbyists. Uh, that would give towards this uh, person, and under the guise of, oh, we really stand for their values, we really stand for their, this thing, that thing, but it's really because they've got an interest, and they want these guys in their back pocket. Uh, so this was the commonplace uh, approach to following after people. These people, these leaders would become advocates, so to speak, for the people. Uh, they would oftentimes, um, uh, they were like sponsors, uh, or patrons is what they would call them. Like if we have patron saints, you know, we don't have patron saints, but some people that believe in patron saints, uh, these would become your patron, the person who would kind of oversee you and take care of you. So if you gave them money, now you could get something back from them. And so this was common, and Paul knew this. 
And Paul was not interested in becoming a slave to the strings that were attached to their generosity or their, their seeming generosity. He was not interested in being a steward of their whims and desires. Rather, he wanted to be a slave for the gospel. Uh, he wanted to be a steward of the message of the pure gospel. And so today I believe that we're going to see God's heart and desire for the church to be a place and to be a people that teaches and declares the beautiful, rich, powerful, life-changing, healing, condemnation-destroying good news of Jesus Christ. That this is what God wants his church to be. This is what he wants his pastors and shepherds to espouse. He wants his people to be people who love the rich and beautiful gospel. That we don't have our special interests that we're lobbying for, but that the thing that we would lobby for is the gospel in our churches. The gospel in our lives, the gospel in our families with integrity, with purity, with clarity, and with passion. So allow me to pray as we jump into 1 Corinthians. We're going to be starting uh, chapter 9 this morning. And I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see through uh, this, this aspect of Paul's teaching. That his, at the very core of what he wants and what the Lord wants is gospel integrity and clarity within the church. Father in heaven, we come here today as your church, as your people, gathered together. And even as Pastor Eric was sharing during the the welcome, God, we come here just sometimes just feeling like our life is upside down, our world is falling apart. And indeed, sometimes it is. As we sang this morning, that our world, at times, everything around us is falling, fading. And it's in these times that, God, we know that when we are in and part of a church that loves the gospel and preaches the gospel, the unadulterated, the, the, the pure, unfiltered gospel, that it's in those times when everything else is falling around us that somehow we can still stand because we're standing on the rock of ages. We have a firm foundation. And so we pray, God, that we would see that in this text today, that your desire, your heart for your church and for the shepherds that you've called to lead and care for churches, that the heart of those churches and those leaders would be for gospel integrity, gospel passion, gospel truth, gospel clarity. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just lead us into your word today, that it would bring life to our souls, our hearts, Open our eyes, make them wider, make our hearts bigger, our minds fuller. We love you and we thank you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, uh, we'll go through a handful of verses, but we're going to just take some pieces here as we go. Uh, so we'll just do two verses right now, and we'll get into some a little bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Paul's asking these rhetorical questions to the Corinthians. He says, am I not free? The answer is yes. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others, maybe I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you because you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
And it begins with a series of rhetorical questions, which he expects them to answer with the answer of yes, similar to maybe how you might ask your kids some questions. Did I say you could write on the walls? Oh, no, I, I didn't say it? Okay. You know, or or who, who's the mom and dad in this house? Oh, oh, we are? Oh, okay. You know, he's asking these rhetorical questions expecting uh, he knows the answer. And it's to get them to kind of think through logically what the answer is. The obvious answer is yes for them. He's like, Am I, I'm an apostle, right? They're like, well, yeah. And he's trying to get to their heart by asking these obvious rhetorical questions because the Corinthians felt entitled, as I said, to have certain kinds of leaders that would fit their view of what a leader looks like and what a leader is supposed to do for them, how he's supposed to care for them and shepherd them and how he's supposed to look and speak and act. And so they would want to give them money and material blessing in order to kind of mold him and, and shape him into what they would want. They would want their pastor to be more dynamic, the best public speaker, to look nice, to look maybe more well-kept like the other Greeks, maybe dressing a little nicer, be popular. That would give them, followers of Paul, some street cred. But if he, you know, preached this kind of, uh, this seemingly weak or foolish gospel, if he didn't esteem prominence the way that the other Greeks did, then now they kind of look like their leader and they're going, yeah, we like that guy, Paul. I know his message is kind of weird and, and it would take away a little bit of credibility. Similar maybe today how, you know, sometimes we make our decision on maybe where we go to church or, or whatever it might be based on what that church has to offer, what that church's public image is. And I don't mean a good public gospel image, but just the, just the general image of the church. Going to a large church maybe makes you feel like, well, this is clearly a more successful church. Or going to a church with, uh, with a pastor who has, is much more slick or he's funny or whatever it might be uh, might somehow give you some kind of feeling of uh, credibility. Or maybe a church that's in a certain part of town or a church that has certain types of programs. And so we do all this very similar thing. But for the Greeks, this was uh, uh, very outward in the way that they would give, the way that they would uh, use their finances and material blessing to really kind of control um, public figures. And Paul failed their test as far as what they thought that he should be. He wasn't a great communicator, which might surprise us. He wrote half the New Testament. His writings are the best written documents in history. But he wasn't a great public communicator. He wouldn't pander to their beliefs or their desires or their wants or their whims. He wasn't outwardly impressive like some of the other what he would call super apostles that he would write about in his other letters. And he knew that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says this. He said, I know what they're saying about me. They say, oh, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. He knows that people talk about him. Hey, he's a good writer, but boy, in person, he's terrible. I mean, he knows that this is what they're saying. And, they, and I know that they're saying, and his speech is of no account. I know what they say about me. I'm a terrible public speaker. I do a lot of ums and a lot of awkward pauses. My jokes fall flat. I know what they say about me. But let such a person understand. I want them to understand that what we say by letter when we're absent, we do when we're present. We back up. We, we practice what we preach. We might not be impressive in person, but we practice what we preach. We're the real deal. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those others who are commending themselves, speaking of these super apostles, but when people, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. They miss the whole point. And the Corinthians are missing the point. That's why he's writing this also 
also to the Corinthians, but in the letter of 2 Corinthians. And so despite his lack of living up to their expectations, he's going to ask these rhetorical questions to remind them, yes, I am an apostle, and you guys know this. You're comparing me to these other apostles. You want me to be more like your secular public figures. But let me just ask you real quick. Am I an apostle? I am. Have I cared for you? I am. I might not be an apostle to those other people, but I am to you. I've cared for you. I've, I've taught you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They might not respect me, but I would think that you would because you know me. I'm a man of my word. I'm, I'm not impressive in public, but you know my heart. You know who I am. And so he asked these questions because in their culture, who you were committed to is what gave you kind of street cred. And one of the ways that they would apply this pressure was by financial giving. And we'll see this unfold as we go. But one commentator says this about this section in 1 Corinthians. A guy named Peter Marshall, he's a commentator on the New Testament. He says that the offer of a gift constituted an offer of friendship. If you gave someone a gift, you gave a public figure a gift, it, it offered a friendship. While in theory, he says, it was voluntary and didn't have any interest, right? there was no kind of ulterior motive, but it was intended to place the recipient under an obligation to repay. Acceptance was conditional. If you accepted the gift, there was a condition attached. The recipient must respond with a counter gift or a service immediately or at some later time. And numerous and popular conventions governed the behavior of both benefactor and recipient, meaning that in their culture they had certain things, kind of unwritten rules about how this would happen. If you gave a public figure a certain amount of money or a certain kind of material gift, there was an expectation. It might have been an unwritten rule, but this is just how we do. And that was the norm for this culture. And so Paul obviously knew this. And he would not have them be his master. Rather, he would want God to be his master. He didn't want to be their slave because he was already a slave to Jesus Christ. His desire was to serve all, both Jew and Greek, not to favor one or the other. But taking the money of this person or that person, some of these Corinthians, would make him a servant now to them. To return the favor somehow and preach the way that they would want him to preach and preach the things that they would want him to preach and stay away from topics they would, they would want him to stay away from. And so as we'll see as we go through this text, he wouldn't take their money. He knew their money wasn't about caring for him or loving the gospel or being generous. It was more akin to like bribe money. And he would not be bought he refused to have them have him in their back pocket. He didn't care about what they felt entitled to. He cared more about their spiritual health. He cared more about the gospel being preached to them. And that offends them because now all of a sudden he's taken away their means of control and power. Right? If he doesn't take their money, then now what do they have? Now they just have to listen to him because he owes them nothing except for the gospel. And so they start to murmur they start to murmur among themselves. They're upset that he won't take their money because that's their ticket. And here's what he does in response. So he asks these questions, am I free, am I apostle? The answer is yes, 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 you are. Yeah, we know that, Paul. So here's what he says. He actually, in a funny way, he agrees with them. But he does it in a way to kind of flip it on its head. So here's what he says in verse three. Here's my defense for those who would examine me. I know you guys are murmuring. You say, oh, man, we, he won't take our money. Now we can't you know, control him. We can't, oh, whatever. Here's my defense to those, to those who would examine me and question me, question my, my apostleship, question my decision to not take money. 
Do we, speaking, he's gonna, we're going to see you speaking of him and Barnabas, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Another rhetorical question. Well, of course you do. Yeah, you can eat and drink. Yeah, I mean, of course. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Well, yeah, yeah, you can get married if you want. Yeah, that's totally fine, Paul. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he's pointing to the fact that other gospel workers, apostles or other pastors, apparently were able to not work in the marketplace because their livelihood was the gospel. So he's saying, are, are we the only ones who aren't allowed to do that? Do we have to go and find work and, you know, and also you know, give our lives to the gospel? And they're like, well, no, no, you have the right to, to make your living by the preaching of the gospel. And, in, and he knows that in their mind, they're going, that's why we want to pay you, Paul. But he says, and he, and he goes on to kind of build this case that they think they're building. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, am I saying these things on human authority? Is this just my opinion No, doesn't the law, the law of Moses, say the same thing? It's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It's a picture of an ox who's plowing through a grain field. And as the ox goes through, he just wants to nibble on some of the wheat. He's hungry. He's working hard, working for his master working to to gather food for the people. And so it's only right for the ox to be able to nibble on some grain as he goes through. You wouldn't dare put a muzzle on the ox and say, you can't have some of that. I know you're you're, you're, uh, plowing through so many acres of food, but we don't want you to have a little snack. You can't have a portion of this. We're gonna muzzle you. You would never do that. You would never do that to an ox. And so that's in Deuteronomy 25, verse four. Paul's now referring to that. But then going back into 1 Corinthians, Paul says, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? He's asking him, do you think that Deuteronomy 25, 4 is there really because to show us how to care for an ox? Is that why you think that text is there? Or do you think that's making another point? He's kind of helping them study their Bible here. Doesn't it certainly, doesn't that verse about not muzzling an ox, doesn't that actually speaking for our sake? Isn't that more for us, for gospel laborers who are in the field working do you think that's really for an ox no that's 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 for us that's for the gospel workers gospel laborers paul's saying i I hope you know that command wasn't literally to teach you how to take care of an ox it's just a word picture martin luther famously and uh you know he had a great sense of humor in his commentary on this text he said clearly this was not written for oxen since oxen can't read And that's how he just would explain the obvious nature that that wasn't for an ox, that was for gospel laborers. Don't put a muzzle on your gospel laborers. And Paul goes on and he says this, it was written for our sake, our meaning him and Barnabas, speaking collectively for gospel laborers, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So a farmer isn't only excited to reap his harvest, so he can just have this big harvest. He's also looking forward that he's going to be sustained by this very harvest himself. If we've sown, Paul says, spiritual things among you, if we've, if we've given you spiritual service, is it too much if we reap material things from you? We have spiritual things to offer. You have material things to offer. It's a partnership. We're all part of the same family. We do different chores. 
we complement each other. And he says, so now if we reap or if we sow spiritual things among you, is it too much if we would reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more so? Nevertheless, we haven't made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul says, yes, I agree with you. I can and should be taken care of for my work as a spiritual shepherd. So he's agreeing, yes, I, I know you want to give me money, you want to give me material things, and I agree that this is biblical. Uh, commentator David Pryor says that Paul actually uses five different approaches to defend the practice of taking care of shepherds, that God is called to preach the gospel. Uh, in, this, in your notes, you can follow along with me here. It says that Paul agrees that he has the right to be provided for since he provides them with spiritual nourishment And these five things David Pryor points to, one is ordinary practice. People who provide things should be provided for. You go to a restaurant, if you're provided food, you should provide money. Uh, If you uh, go get your car wash, you're provided a service, you should provide the compensation for that. So ordinary practice in life, if someone provides something, you provide back. Scriptural precedent, so he makes a point in, in his text here. He also appeals to a scriptural precedent. He points to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 4. So it shows that it's biblical to do so. He also appeals to common sense. He goes, you even take care of your animals, don't you? So if you take care of your animals, obviously, people who feed you spiritually, you'd want to also have the joy of taking care of them. He also points to religious custom. We don't know exactly if he's speaking of Jewish temple and altar, or maybe if he's mixing, he's talking about Jewish altar and temple, but also reminding them that even your pagan guys here in Corinth, even those guys get paid through their service. We don't know if he's speaking only of the Jews or only of pagans or maybe both, but he's even pointing to religious custom. In the Jewish culture, in the pagan culture, the religious spiritual ministers were taken care of by their service. But also, fifthly, if that wasn't enough to have those four, he even points to the words of Jesus, probably referring to Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. He's giving some instruction to those he's sending out to preach the gospel. And he says to them in chapter 10, verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. He's saying, don't take any money with you. Don't don't leave your home with money. You don't need to take your money with you. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. He's saying, you just go because, he says, the laborer deserves his food. He says, you go because your work you will be taken care of. People will take care of you. You don't have to go and provide for yourself. You will go, and God, through people, will take care of you. And that's probably what Paul is referring to, that Jesus himself said the laborer deserves it. The laborer is going to earn his food by his work. But then Paul goes on to say something that really offends them and kind of goes backwards, it seems. He says in verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights. I know I have the right to be compensated, to be cared for, to be fed, To be paid, I I know I've got that right. I just made that case to you guys. I agree with you on that end. And I'm also not telling you all this, telling you about my rights so that I can get money from you. Just so you aren't thinking that. I'm not writing this little bit so I can get. I'm I'm not writing these things to secure this provision from you. That's not my goal here. 
I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting because the gospel is a weak, foolish message. For necessity is laid upon me. I preach out of a need in my soul. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's why I preach. I don't preach for money. I don't preach for comfort. There's a necessity that's been laid upon me. there's, There's a burning in my bones is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah said, even if I tried to keep quiet, if I tried to shut my mouth, I would not be able to because there's a burning in my bones and I cannot keep it inside me. And so Paul says, I don't want to rob myself of any of that. Woe to me if I don't preach the true, clear gospel. If I take your money and I know that you're going to want to try to control me with it, then I'm not going to be able to really preach the gospel. It's going to be a different gospel, a prosperity gospel, a comfort gospel, and that is not a gospel. It's a false gospel, and I am not going to do that. If I do this of my own will, my own desire, my own motive, then I have a reward. I get my pay. I get my comfort. I get my pat on the back. I get your accolades. But if I don't do it of my own will, but of rather the necessity placed upon me, the mandate upon my soul and my life that I've been called to be a slave to Jesus Christ. If that's why I do this, that this is not my will, but this is God's will working in and through my life, then I'm still entrusted now with a stewarding the gospel. My master is Christ Almighty. And I preach the gospel. So what then is my reward? If I'm just a steward, my reward is that in preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. That's my reward. My reward is that I get to just preach the gospel freely with no strings attached. I'm not in the back pocket of someone else. I'm not going to let you guys control me because that's your motive. His goal is to keep his passion for the gospel at the forefront of his mind and heart. He knows he has rights given biblically, ordinary practice, the words of Jesus, He knows he has the right to receive compensation, to receive that kind of care, but he's not going... Remember, we're just coming out of this thing on the conscience, right? Where you might have rights, but there's times in your life when you should put aside your rights. And that's what he's saying. That's why this comes right after that section. He goes, I know I've got these rights. I'm telling you that if you can, take care of your shepherds. They care for you. But he's saying, but in this moment, in this instance, with this church, with you guys, the way your heart is, I'm not going to take your money. Because he's not doing this for human reward. Not out of his own strength or supply. He's doing it because he sees that what he's been entrusted to and with is this mandate by God to preach a clear and pure gospel. And right now where the Corinthians are at, that's not their motive. That's not their motive. He doesn't want to be in their back pockets. He doesn't want to feel obligated. He doesn't want to feel manipulated. He wants to do this with no strings attached. And the only way he could do that with the Corinthians in their culture the way that they were wired and the way he was hoping they would get unwired in this time, he said, I'm not going to be part of your special interest. Now there's some insight into what I think is going in behind the scenes and kind of the foundation of what's going on in this section here. Because at the core of this, this text is not so much about making an argument, I don't think, for paying gospel laborers and workers or the how-tos, 
He's not trying to give them instruction. He even says, he's, he's not, and my point in saying this isn't to get money from you guys. That's not the point of why I bring this up. And I don't think the, the point here, the main point, I don't think, is to show us how to avoid favoritism in the church. And those things are all there. There's, there's clear precedent here. He's telling them, yes, yes, take care of your gospel workers. And yes, yes, avoid favoritism. That's there, but I don't think that's the main thrust of Paul's argument here. I think at the core of what's going on here is his desire for the integrity of the message and the mission of the gospel. The main reason why he's even bringing this up is because he has this deep desire for the pure ministry and message of the gospel to be preached in churches and by pastors. Interestingly, his argument to both compensate and take care of gospel laborers and also his argument for he himself to not be paid for his gospel work is actually to say, serve the same exact goal. He has actually the same motive. He says, yeah, pay your, your gospel workers, but don't pay me. That seems to contradict, doesn't it? But his reason for both those things is actually the same, even though it seems contradictory. Because Paul makes an argument here that pastors should be taken care of and provided for, but also agrees, or argues, I'm sorry, that, that he does not himself want the Corinthians to take care of him. So, so which is it? But remember, as we were just getting on this part of the conscience and laying down rights, there's sometimes two approaches to one issue to get to the same goal. Paul's using this as an example of how he himself also puts aside his rights that he is totally entitled to for the sake of the gospel. And though these are the two things are, are total opposites, they seem contradictory, they're actually complementary because they're actually going after the same common denominator, the same common goal. And that's his desire for the integrity of the message and the ministry of the gospel being preached and lived out in the local church. That is what he desires. So let me explain this, why these two opposites can actually serve the same purpose. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, sharing some similar instruction, actually quotes himself a little bit to him, but adds in another element that I think gives us a little more nuance to this this purpose. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Let the elders who are pastors, the shepherds, gospel laborers, let the elders who rule well, okay, the good ones, the ones who are doing a good job, they're in it for the right reason, the right motive, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of, he says, double honor. Especially those elders, those pastors, those shepherds who labor, who particularly their job specifically is preaching and teaching. So he says, let those elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. The ones who preach and teach as a living, let them be considered worthy of double honor. Because, he says, the scripture says, and he goes back again to Deuteronomy 25. Because he says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So again, he's making the case that that's not really about an ox. That's about gospel laborers. Let them enjoy the fruit of their labor. And he also quotes Jesus from Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. If a, laborer, if a gospel laborer works in a particular field preaching the gospel, he deserves his wage. He deserves to be taken care of. But then he adds this. This is not in 1 Corinthians. And this adds some interesting nuance, I think. He says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that's interesting because when we confront someone in sin... 
you have to have a witness. If you see someone saying, you have the ability to go to that person and say, I saw you do this, and, 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 you know, I, and it's sin, it's wrong, you should repent, and, and that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we see in Matthew 18. But if it's an elder, interestingly enough, the word says we should have two or three witnesses. Well, why is that? Is it because the elder, the pastor, the shepherd is on some other plane, he's more special, he's untouchable, Protected by God? I mean, is it that? I don't think so at all. I think a pastor is the same as every other Christian, the same as other uh, member of the body of Christ, equal to every other member of the body of Christ. So why is there that extra caveat? Well, the life of a pastor, a shepherd, is constantly under a microscope. Uh, The life of a, a pastor is... Uh, just different. It's unique. Um, everything is scrutinized, and everything's intertwined. You know, I think I mentioned a, about a month or so ago. It's you know our our, our social life, our family life, our friends, our kids' friends, uh, our, our 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 casual time, everything, our ministry, and not only just where we minister, but the people that minister to us. Everything is intertwined in our life. It's just this big. I call it like a, a smoothie. You know, it's just you throw all those things in there, you put blend on it, and I can't sometimes discern the difference between socializing and ministering. You know, our our friends are also people that we minister to and people that minister to us. It's our livelihood. So it's, it's all mixed up, so it gets very confusing sometimes. But whether it's all these things, ministry or the church that we're ministered to, it's the church that ministers to us, it's our, our kids' friends. You know, I'll, I'll admit that there's times when you know, I'll, I'll tell my wife, you know, oh, I'm, I'm meeting so-and-so on Tuesday, and she'll say, oh, what's wrong? I'm going, I, I think we're just hanging out to have fun. <laughs> you know? But the automatic, you know, because you get used to this thing, you know, oh, we should hang out with the, the have so-and-sos over dinner. And, and then sometimes I'll say, why, is, is, is everything okay? It's like, well, I think we just want to have fun. <laughs> but we live in this weird little world where we don't really, there's just, it's just all kind of a blur. And so everything is always on the forefront, and everything is kind of being examined by us as well as by other people, how we raise our kids, how we spend our money, how we socialize, what we do in our spare time. Are we overworking? Are we underworking? Uh, You name it. Do I use the right words at the right time in the right way? Did I talk too much? Did I not talk enough? Am I doing enough counseling, not enough counseling? Am I not following up well enough? Am I I being too smothering? I mean, it's, it's everything's under this microscope. I tell my wife, Somewhat frequently, I just, so many times where I just feel like I'm constantly failing in everything because I'm trying to walk this perfect line because everything is always under a microscope. Now, though most of the things I just mentioned aren't sin issues worthy of accusation, but I believe that part of the point of why God requires two or three witnesses against elders is because we, meaning pastors, elders, shepherds, are an easy, frequent, common, and strategic target for the enemy, for accusation, uh, for complaints, to try to somehow bring about a discouragement and a disablement of us, mentally, spiritually, physically. Going after us is an, is an easy way to bring about, because we know that the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren, right? And so we know that he's accusing all of us. And he loves using brothers and sisters specifically to discourage, divide, and destroy pastors. Because if he can affect the pastor, then he can affect a you know, hundred other people very easily. And I think that's one reason that the enemy loves to undermine 
the pastor to bring about accusation because the enemy loves to undermine the ministry of God's word in the local church. He loves to distract the pastor, the shepherds, from what they're really called to do and care for the people and feed them, to counsel them, to shepherd them. If he can distract them, if he can somehow disable them, and all he's got to do is put one kind of unfounded accusation in someone's mind, and then all of a sudden it's two or three weeks of meetings and whatever else. So I think there's this extra caveat. This is just what I think because he wants to make sure he wants to kind of cut out all this frivolous stuff that is just is make believe. This is the enemy just whispering. But if there's two or three witnesses or something, then there's some credibility to it, and then you should definitely listen to it. And there should definitely be conversations had. But the enemy hates seeing the gospel being preached in local churches. He hates when a pastor is actually able to focus on the teaching of the word of God. The enemy hates to see pastors and shepherds who actually have undivided attention to the true and clear gospel being preached to the congregation. The enemy hates that. Satan hates God's word. You guys know that, right? He hates God's word. He hates when the church is saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ. The enemy hates when a local body has a pastor who loves to lavish the flock in gospel truth week in and week out. He hates that. He hates when a local body is faithfully, every single Sunday, every single community group, every single fight club, every single conversation being pointed to the glory and beauty of Jesus. He hates that. He hates when a pastor is actually being encouraged by his church. You know he hates that, right? He hates seeing pastors and shepherds encouraged. He hates seeing them excited about their church. He hates seeing pastors excited about the word of God. He hates seeing pastors not feeling obligated to the whims of men and women in their church. He hates that. He hates seeing pastors unhinged to the back pockets or the desires of people. He hates seeing pastors see themselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. He hates that. He hates when a church filled with broken people are being healed and mended by the life-saving power of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. The enemy hates this church. And so to a church, and specifically to pastors, Paul says specifically those who preach the word, who are entrusted with that stewardship of bringing that gospel truth, that healing gospel truth, to people, the enemy will bring distraction and weariness and exhaustion and some kind of uh, favoritism, accusation, anxiety, you name it, he will bring it. The enemy will bring it. And he will find any way to come into a local church. And he's gonna try to take all of us out, don't get me wrong. But he will do everything he can to undermine the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so to weed out these frivolous, unfounded, agenda-driven accusations that just distract and discourage, and, and, and tough conversations have to happen, confrontation has to happen, but to weed out some of these more frivolous ones, I think this is why he puts in that extra safety measure. Not because the man himself is elevated above something. That's not the case. But because the ministry of God's word, God, God himself says, above all things, my name and my word is above all things. And so because the ministry of the word of God is so important, that's why I think that those extra precautions are put in there. Not because the man himself, not at all because of that, I don't think, but because of God's word being preached in the church. Also in this passage in 1 Timothy, 
pastors, particularly those who make a living by the preaching, the actual preaching, because not all elders are maybe uh, you know, preaching, teaching, they, they, they lead in different ways. He says they'll be given double honor, and we don't know exactly what that means. But here Paul says that even Christ himself commands that these gospel preachers should be taken care of. But why is that? Again, is it because the man himself? I don't think it is. It's not because they're esteemed or more special, anything like that. I think it has less to do about the man himself, the, the gospel laborer himself, and more to do with the ministry of the word in the body of Christ. Because consider the picture that he gives here. He says, what, what if you had a, a, an ox that was muzzled, or a soldier had to pay for his own gear? You can follow with me in the notes here. Under oxen, a muzzled ox would be weak, thin, exhausted, distracted, Wanted to go somewhere else to find food. He would not be interested in, in plowing that field because someone else can maybe give him some food. His eyes would wander to something else that could actually take care of him and his, and his family, you know, his, his family of little, you know, mini oxen. And all of this means much less work, less actual field work gets done because there's weakness and the work would be poor. The ox may eventually even collapse not maybe live out his whole life as a good, healthy ox. Soldiers, a soldier who provides his own equipment and training will be inept, unskilled, using inferior weapons because he can't afford the latest, greatest. He can't, he can't pay for the right training. He's got to just figure it out himself. So, so he can't defend himself, much less defend others. Farmers, you talked about you know, vineyard workers, or people who are tending sheep, taking some milk or taking some of the, the, uh, the crop. Farmers forbidden to enjoy their own crop will be tempted to find another line of work and also become maybe burned out or bitter towards the field owners. If they're just working for someone who owns the field and the field owner says, oh, no, no, you can't take any of that milk. You can't take any of those. That's just all for us, for me to sell. You might even start getting bitter towards the field owner. So you get this picture now that pastors, elders, would still preach. They'd still come week in and week out, but the amount of study, the passion, the time, their lives are distracted, the energy wouldn't be as robust, lots of just regurgitated, thin, weak sermons, watered down, be that difference between maybe like a TV dinner or just a good meal. Spurgeon said that sermonettes produce Christianettes. We could, we could do sermonettes every week, thin, weak gospel messages, but your lives wouldn't change. You would just kind of, oh, nice, nice sermon, Pastor, and just leave. And it's like the man who looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets who he is. Pastors would be mentally, spiritually, physically exhausted more than they already are, burn out. They wouldn't get the care and discipleship that they need, and then they wouldn't be able to give the care and discipleship that the church needs. So, Paul. Going back into 1 Corinthians 11, he says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? So he's given a picture of a double standard in society. You know, if you want gas, you pay the gas station. You want a burger, you pay the restaurant. And pastors aren't the only ones that live in this paradigm. A lot of different industries that maybe have some kind of public service, we kind of expect that, oh, they should just do it out of the goodness of their own heart. You know, whether it's musicians or certain arts, whatever it is, uh, you know, we don't want to pay for music. We want to get it for free. You know, anything that's like a public service, we tend to kind of have a double standard on. So it's not just pastors. 
but we, we pay for products all day long, but if there's not a discernible product we get, we just kind of think that you know, we, don't, we shouldn't have to take care of those people. And so Paul's even pointing to a double standard here. He says, if others share that rightful claim on you, don't we even more so? Like, we're giving you spiritual food. You take care of other people who provide food and clothing. Why would you neglect the people who care for you spiritually? How much more than would you want the responsibility and would you want the joy and the privilege and the honor of being, taking, being able to take care of these people who love you and take care and shepherd your soul? When we took our trip this last couple of weeks, I always tell our boys whenever we get to you know, do something like that, something that's just unique, it's just a great you know, memory for our family, I always tell them uh, that we get to do this because we're part of a church. Our, fa- our church family is a church family that loves the gospel. And a lot of times, you know, and they've heard me do this like every single time we do something, but sometimes, you know, the connection is like, I don't, how does that even make sense, you know? And, you know, though, I mean, we, we pay for our, our trips and all that kind of stuff ourselves, but, but I tell them, like, Dad is employed. I make my living because we're part of a family of people who love the gospel so much they entrust part of their income, their hard-earned income. They want the gospel to preach to them every week. They want the gospel preached in their community every week. And they want that so much, they love that so much, they're willing to trust God with their finances. They're not content with having a weak, watered-down message or whatever it might be. But they love the gospel so much that they actually entrust God with their finances. They love our family so much that they entrust their finances to the church. And so anything that we do in our life, we know is because our church family loves the gospel. Our church family loves Jesus Christ, loves the gospel being preached, values the true word of God being preached. And we are like the, 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 the gospel laborer that Paul describes here. Our, I'm, I'm an ox, I'm not being muzzled. And it's because... The church cares for the gospel. I know you guys love us too, but more than that, you love the gospel. And so I get to tell my kids that anytime we enjoy something, it's because our church loves the gospel. And I love that I can tell my kids that because many, uh, and you guys have heard the stories, but many churches are the opposite of what is being described here. And maybe those pastors get paid, but a lot of churches abuse their pastors and their pastors' families and the pastors' wives. And, and a lot of times the kids grow up borderline hating the church because the church robbed them of their dad. And so I'm thankful that I'm able to tell my kids, no, church, uh, boys, your church loves you, loves me, loves your mom. But more than that, they love us because they love the gospel. So Paul makes this case, though, that the reason why he has not made his claim on his rights, and this is the connection here, is the same reason why he commands the church, supply your pastors, supply your shepherds. But he makes the case, the reason why he has not made that claim is because their whole motive is different. See, the difference between us and this church here is motive. I, I preach the gospel clearly and clearly. I, feel, I don't feel pressure 
from people in this church that I've got to, you know, oh, this person, you know, I think they're pretty generous or whatever, so I've got to preach a certain way. I don't feel that connection because I know you want me to preach the pure and clear gospel, but they didn't, and that's why he said, no, I'm not going to let you take care of me. Two totally different churches here. Paul's not anti being taken care of at all. As a matter of fact, he took, uh, he, he received money and gifts from other churches. So he made his living off the gospel. You know, he also had a side job. He, he made tents, but he made, he made, he got provision from the preaching gospel. But for this church, because of their motive, their motive was not for him. Their motive was not for the gospel. Their motive was for control and manipulation and influence. And so he's not anti-receiving that. He's, he's saying, no, do that, but not in this case. And as a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians later, so he writes this letter, challenges them, right? All in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 5 about sexual morality and the factions and the favoritism and this here. And in 2 Corinthians, guess what, church? In chapter 7, he says, I want to tell you guys something. I'm so glad to hear about your repentance. And guess what he says to them? He goes, and I want to thank you for the gift that you sent me. He received from them. Why? Because their hearts changed. Between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he acknowledges in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, you guys repented. I've been hearing awesome reports about what's been going on in you. And by the way, thank you for the generous gift you sent me. Right here and now he's saying, I'm not going to take your money because you've got strings attached. And I can't preach the clear gospel. But later on, he says, you repented and thank you for the gift. I can see your heart. You, I know now you're giving me this gift because you love me and you love the gospel. And now, because you're taking care of me with this gift, now I can, I, can free, I can make a few less tents and I can preach a few more sermons to the next place I go because of you guys. And so here he is, he's saying, whether you, you, know, you should pay and you should take care of your, your, uh, your shepherds, but in this case, no, you, I'm not going to take your money because his heart is for the pure, clear gospel to be preached. In taking care of your shepherds, they're able to preach a clear gospel, a pure gospel. They're not weary. They're not exhausted. They're not distracted. But in this case, when there's some, some favoritism being wanted, there's some obligation to people, he's saying you shouldn't be paid because it's going to distort your preaching of the gospel. So the underlying issue here with all of this is Paul, his desire, and I believe the Holy Spirit's desire for putting this in here, is because he wants the integrity of the gospel to be preached. That was the most important thing to Paul. You've probably experienced some similar things like this in your life. You know, if one person offers to do a favor for you, you gladly accept it. Because you know they just want to honor you, bless you, take care of you. Another person offers you the same exact favor, and you know, if I do this, it's going to come back to me later. If I, if I let them do this favor, they're going to, they say no strings attached, but I, I know I'm going to pay for this somehow later. You, you've experienced that. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying in some situations, yes, it's good. Receive the gift that God gives you. And other times, you kind of have to have that wisdom to say, I don't think I should accept this. And that's what Paul's doing here. And the reason is he, gospel integrity is of utmost importance to him. That's the main thing that he wants. And for me and for us, for our church, I, I share with Paul the same desire. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. This is why right here on my pulpit, engraved right here that you can't see, it's from the book of Acts. I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the necessity that's been laid upon me. 
Like Jeremiah said, there's fire in my bones and I, I can't keep my mouth shut. And I believe that our church has been called here to Escondido in this place, in this community. I believe that God has called you to your neighborhood, your kids and their schools, and their sports teams, your workplace, that when we go to those places, and within our hearts, we would say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And, and, and you might not be you know, paid to go to school or paid to be on your kids' sports teams, but your currency might not be money, but I would hope that we would not fear to be in the back pocket of other people's opinions. That we would fear man in our workplace, fear man with the parents of our kids' sports teams or the, or the parents of the kids uh, uh, that our kids go to school with. That I would hope that we would go and we would say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There's necessity laid upon me. God has put me in this school, put me in this workplace, in this neighborhood that I might preach the gospel with no strings attached. That I would not pander to their desires or their worldview, but I would, I would be a light and, and I'd be salt in this person's life because I can't keep this to myself. That wherever we are called to go, wherever God calls us to, we wouldn't be swayed by the bribery of popularity, by the bribery of friendship or acceptance or reputation or money or power, but that rather we'd be held captive by the word of God, be held captive by the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we'd be enamored by the bigness and beauty of the good news, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came because, he came here because we couldn't go there. The only way that we will go with that kind of fervor and passion into those places is if our church, not just on Sundays, but if our church remains dedicated and passionate about preaching and hearing the gospel the pure, clear gospel preached, not just Sunday to Sunday, week in, week out, but day to day. And if we believe this word, and as Jeremiah says, if we eat this word, if we ingest this word, it will become sweet to us. And eventually it will become fire in our bones. Let's pray and thank the Lord for the gospel. Thank the Lord for his passion for the good news to be preached in his church and pray that the Lord would hold us close because we are prone to wander from this. Father in heaven, we know that you care for your church. We, you care for your people. You care for the shepherds that you put in your churches. And you care for them in themselves but we also know that you care for them because you care for your, your word. You put, place above all things your name and your word. And, and so you care for your church, but specifically you care for your church to hear and receive the word of God. And this is why you care for the shepherds that you place in your churches. Because you love them, yes, but... I would say mainly because you love your word being preached. So help us, Father, as your church to, to keep the gospel central in our corporate church, but also in our individual lives. That we would want to hear the pure gospel. That we would never tire of it. We would never, I want to pray for our congregation, that our congregation would never want our church to sway from the pure gospel. 
And we know we'll be tempted. We'll be tempted to do this thing or that thing or to become, you know, bigger, flashier, uh, whatever it might be, cater to our needs. We don't want to be like that. We want to be the kind of church that comes here every Sunday, meets in our groups, meets with our friends, and we just want to behold the beauty of your son, Jesus. Help us to be that church. We, we, need, to, uh, we need to constantly be repenting of, of our waywardness and our desire to have our interests uh, be pursued. Help our church to make much of Christ, to make him the center, the pinnacle of, of everything that we do. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for your mercy and grace towards our church. You've done wonderful, amazing things in our church these last six years. I'm just so amazed, so, so confounded by it. And we pray and even expect, Lord, that you're gonna continue to do that work among us. And we thank you for that. And it is in the mighty name of your son we pray and ask all these things. Amen.